We know that many of our readers like to share their copy of the Church Times with others. That may not be possible at the moment. As an alternative, we're offering a short-term discounted subscription, just £1 a week for 10 weeks. That includes UK delivery and there's no obligation to renew. You can purchase the subscription for yourself or as a gift for someone else. You'd enjoy all of our usual subscriber benefits, the paper in the post each week, all the news at churchtimes.co.uk, access to the digital archive, the app for iPhone and iPad, and listening to this podcast. To purchase a subscription, go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash 10 hyphen weeks. I'm joined this week by Augustine Tanner-Eim. He's an ordinand at Cranmer Hall, Durham, and is one of the finalists in the Theology Slam competition, which takes place online on the 23rd of June at 7pm. His talk will be on theology and race. Augustine, a welcome to the Church Times podcast. Thank you, Ed. First of all, some of our readers will, and listeners will have um, read about you in our coverage of, of Theology Slam, but could you just tell me a bit about your, your background? I mean, you're from the US, and you tell me a bit about how you came to be in England and, and an ordinand in the Church of England. Yeah, it's a, it's a crazy story, um, and thank you so much for letting me be on the podcast. I, I'm from Chicago, Illinois, um, was raised slightly outside of the city of Chicago with my mother, brother, and my sister and um, grew up as Joe's Witness. Um, and then at 14 years old, um, my friend invited me to this uh, youth group um, and they were singing songs and doing stuff. And I thought it was really, really, really weird and random. I remember the first song I ever sang, contemporary Christian song, was Better Is One Day In Your Courts. I don't know if you remember that, Better yeah. Is One Day In Your House. And I remember what is a weird song, Better One Day In A Basketball Court. That's just such a strange thing. But then that summer I went to summer camp and um, basically experienced God in a, in, in a really interesting way. Um, it was a very Pentecostal, it was the Sims of God. And um, yeah, became a Christian through to you know, seeing some signs and wonders at this summer camp. And was like, I just want to follow Jesus. That was really difficult for my family, obviously being Jehovah's Witness, and it, it made things quite complicated without a doubt. Then I went to university, I went to um, a Bible college in, in the States. And um, you know, I just knew that I love Jesus and want people to know about Jesus. I didn't know anything about theology whatsoever. You said Calvinism, Arminianism, Methodist, Episcopalian. I was just like, oh, they just, I don't know. I don't know the difference. At the time when I was 18, it was like, some were boring and some are, <laughs> you know, I didn't really know the difference. And at Bible college, I went in as a Pentecostal and at a Reformed Baptist Bible college and left Episcopalian <laughs> and um, still still very charismatic with left uh, Episcopalian have a love for the Eucharist love for tradition as well and um, and I remember really coming to know the Lord more through the Eucharist which is interesting but then during that Bible college um, I went on a ministry trip to England to Liverpool and I fell in love with Scousers fell in love with being there and I'm like this is where God's calling me to be so a couple of years later, when I finished and finished my master's and everything, I went on to live and work in England. Um, I tried to get a role at an Anglican church and no one was having me. Because <laughs> they're just like, we don't know you. <laughs> you know, I'm obviously emailing people I see online for so that. And they're like, we don't know you. So I was at a free church in Liverpool. And then I was going to a church plant in the city center of Liverpool. Um, and that's where I got confirmed as in the Church of England, which is amazing in Liverpool Cathedral. Beautiful, beautiful cathedral with amazing people and then from there i moved to eastland essex to the challenge for diocese then moved from there to dorset it was a whole nother experience um and then from there i moved to to durham 
where I've been working, um, I've been in Ordinan and working in churches in County Durham, Sunderland, and Newcastle. So it's been, it's been a crazy journey. Yeah. And you're at the stage now in your ordination training where you're near in completion and you're looking for curacies. Is that right? Actually, on Friday, last Friday was our, was the end of term. So it's kind of, it's a weird thing because as you know, obviously we're in lockdown still, stay alert, <laughs> stay at home if possible, but don't stay at home. Um, so um, we didn't really get to say goodbye to most of our friends and stuff, but um, so it doesn't really feel like it's really the end, but it is the end. So um, most of my friends have left and moved to their curacy houses or in the process of moving to curacy houses. And I think you've, you've written on social media about your applying for a curacy or, or curacies. You've had, is it eight rejections so far? Yeah, eight rejections, yeah. Um, and I mean, there's one particular letter that you posted, not, not naming the parish or the diocese or anything, but, but it, I think, shocked and certainly saddened a lot of, a lot of people. Could, could you say a bit about that experience? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, most of the rejections was based upon finances. So it's not, so it wasn't eight rejections based upon race. Obviously, that would be um, quite terrible. I think the particular parish I applied to, I looked on, you know, the Church of England website about African ordination and it was listed there. And it looked like a really cool parish that it would be really cool to, to work at. And um, the opportunities to work with university students and to be able to share the gospel in a contextual way to people. So yeah, so I was really excited about it. But obviously I found it out and I looked into it and I knew where it was and I was like, okay, that's really, really great. So I sent my papers over and my CV over to the DDO and um, he talked to the incumbent and they sent me back that email saying, um, first reason is the demographic of the parish is white monochrome working class and I might feel uncomfortable. And the second was I would probably do better with a more experienced training incumbent, which that happens sometimes. You know, what's important about curacies is that you have a person that is a good training incumbent because it is, you know, it is the second part of the process. So I understood that, but I think giving your, the first reason, even a reason saying of the not matching my skin color, that's what it felt like. And assuming that I feel uncomfortable with that without actually having a conversation, with me and I think that's the difficult thing about it was I just wanted a conversation so being like hey can we can we have a question about you know you are a black man that we see through your papers and this is going to be mostly white working class community how do you feel about that so to kind of shut that down before we have the conversation uh, assuming something and um and unfortunately it says you know when I approached and tried to have I was quite upset, honest. Um, sure. And I found out that actually this diocese and this has all gone through unconscious bias training. So obviously I'm like either unconscious bias training isn't working or there needs to be something more than just, you know, an afternoon of some kind of training. Sure. Um, I mean, how, how did it feel to, to get a response like that? I think, you know, one that's really difficult is, you know, I know the, the diversity of England, and that's one thing I love about it. And I knew that for theological reasons, you can reject someone and you can reject someone based upon their um, gender identity. So those two things in the Church of England that for theological reasons that you can reject one for ministering in your church. But I didn't expect race to be one of them. And I think for me, I was slightly upset that people my dear friends and my, my closest, some of my closest friends were upset with me and my family. 
but not not my training institution. They were not as upset as I would be and be like, actually, this is unjust and this is wrong. They were not as upset about that as I was. And even some of my friends, some of my Christian friends were like, mm, maybe you're being too dramatic. Maybe you're taking out of context. And some have actually said, you know, I'm sorry. I was blind. But actually, this is really bad. Um, and it's wild to do that. And my thing is, I love the Church of England. I truly love the Church of England. I've worked for the Church of England for seven years without being paid. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I haven't had a salary in seven years. But it's because I really wanted to share God's love, transform this society with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and, and do it whatever context that God calls me to. So I don't mean to shame the Church of England, but I want it to bring it to account because we're called to bring a darkness into light. And, and if you've been asked to come and have a, a, a more in-depth conversation with this parish and, you know, and they'd asked you, would you feel uncomfortable here in a, in a white majority working class parish, when, what, what might you have told them? I would have probably told them that I don't have an issue. I'm adopted. Uh, my, um, I was adopted later in life and my parents are white. My brothers are white from a large family in Illinois. I'm, the community I grew up in outside of Chicago is mostly white working class. I lived in Liverpool, white working class, and part of East London, which is white working class, and Dorset, which is a mix, but definitely mostly white working, white working class where I was. And then I moved to the Northeast, which I love the Northeast. It's exciting, amazing people. The Northeast is not known for its economic wealth. So in County Durham and Sunderland and in West Newcastle, I've always, I've always worked with white working class people. Um, so actually, if it, if it was saying, oh, you're going to be with middle class black people, that actually would be a cultural difference <laughs> of experience. So it sounds as if you've actually been very qualified for the, that post, given your experience in those contexts. Yeah. And also, I think if anyone is looking for ordination in the Church of England and they're BAME, you know, black, Asian, minority ethnic, then you understand that you're probably going to be at an all-white parish. Yeah. You know, because because the majority of the country is is white. So I find it I, I found it really weird that that was even brought up because to be honest, because most of the people at training institutions are also white, and where most of our parishes that we're serving at through our training is white, what we're actually getting trained to do is to go into white communities to to minister. We're actually not trained to go into Asian or Black or any or any other communities to be priests and understand the context. Context is assumed white and mostly middle-class assumptions about how we do ministry. Since you posted that letter and it got quite a lot of reaction on social media, have you had any reaction from the church hierarchy as it were? Yeah, so no one in the official capacity has contacted me. So maybe they're going to um, other channels to figure it out first, but no one has contacted me directly. I see. Can, can we just move on to the context we're at the moment with the um, death of George Floyd and the protests yeah. that have taken place mm. in the US and, and here? I should be interested to hear about your experience of race in the US as, as an African-American growing up there. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, I obviously I've experienced lots of race experiences and microaggressions and things like that. I was quite aware at a young age that being black was being different and being black was genuinely always bad. And, and that was something that was really clear to me as a, a child. So I've experienced that quite a lot. Um, I've been stopped by the police, assume things about my character, assume things about my background, 
that is really, really difficult as well. I wasn't shocked at everything that happened. It's interesting how people are like, oh, everyone was like, I'm, I'm just so shocked that this happened. And um, it's not shocking to me because if, Ed, if me and you had a bonfire and you kept feeding it, feeding it, and it gets out of control and it burns your house down, I would say I'm not surprised because you kept feeding the fire. <laughs> and that's what it was going. It was, just, it was this fire that continued to be fed of racism for f- over 400 years with no official commission for reconciliation and forgiveness. And what does repentance look like, even within the worldview of um, the U.S., as well as evangelicals in the U.S., has mostly fueled those tendencies um, within America and kind of rejected their Black brothers and sisters and Asian brothers and sisters when they talk about it. So yes, it's, it's not surprising. It's really, really saddening. The, the nice good thing is my friends in America who in church leadership, I can only speak about the church really, they're getting it. It's been slow, but they're getting it. When I was an undergrad at Moody Bible Institute, I was the treasurer of a black student union. And um, basically, and we're, it's a theological institution, so everything was rooted within theology. And we'd have these seminars all the time to help educate people. And we got a lot of flack for it. People did not like us for it. And people just ignored us. They would sometimes tear down our posters. They said that we're divisive. And actually, last week, I posted on my friends, who was the president of that organization, what, 10, almost 10 years ago. I said, do you remember when we did all this stuff and no one listened to us? And um, I wasn't trying to be provocative. But, and he goes, yeah, I remember. We also all had part-time jobs was running ministries and things like that. It was started the thread of people apologizing. I said, I'm really sorry, but I didn't understand when in my late teens, early twenties, but I'm getting it down. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that we did that. And I think that's been kind of a joy of like seeing people really get it and not get it from like a, a liberal cultural perspective of postmodern, but to get it as in, this is a kingdom gospel issue. Because if the gospel matters, then black lives matter. You know, in the New Testament, it says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. We need to bring the good news to people. And we can't bring the good news of Jesus Christ with people if they don't exist. And I mean, we've seen the, particularly the protests in Bristol over the weekend and the, the pulling down mm. of the statue of, of Edward Colston. Can I just ask first for your perspective on statues like that, how it, how it feels? You, if you're in a city like Bristol, when, when there's a statue like that and you walk past it? So, so one thing I got, I was, got to be a part of, I think it, it may have been in the church times, I don't remember, but about four or five years ago, I was, was able to go with the Archdeacon of Wigan, Jennifer, as well as, I believe, a priest from Ghana. And we went to the International Slavery Museum together and we kind of, and we reflected about our experience. And it was amazing seeing this woman, she's actually American from the Diocese of Virginia, and she's working in Liverpool. He's from Ghana and I'm African. It's all learning about slavery at the International Slavery Museum together. And then the whole triangle thing with Bristol, Liverpool, and Virginia. And um, it was moving. And I think that that was a huge deal. So I think the statue of Bristol, I have to be honest, I haven't never, I've never been to Bristol in that sense, but I've seen enough statues in America to understand what that means. I think it is probably right for it to be down, but also think that it's right for it to be in the museum. So I don't think that we should just tear down everything that is part of bad about our history, but we need to preserve it so we remember it. So I think that's really important. You know, we, we've had this conversation for almost a decade about Confederate statues. 
And um, people always say, what do you think about Confederate statues? I always go, as an American, the Confederate statues should be taken immediately by the government. Part of that is because it represents treason. <laughs> you know, it would be like if we, if we had, right, and have statues of British um, revolutionary soldiers. We don't have that because we're like, no, that's anti-American per se, you know, if you're a main analogy. So we should have all the Confederate stuff. A Confederate flag is a rebel flag, a rebellion against it. We shouldn't celebrate that as Americans. And also, I think as Christians, even as a low church evangelical as I am, I believe that images have power. That's why we have crosses. That's why, we, that's why people go to pilgrimages to Israel, because something about these images that brings emotions to us. See, in, in the Bible, when the Jews build a statue to Baal, you say, oh, let's just, why don't we just keep the statue of Baal? God was like, actually, no, let's not, let's not do that. Images have some kind of theological and psychological power with us that we actually need to get rid of it, but also not to forget about it because that's how we are doomed to repeat history. One thing that has been always filled in me, the basic understanding of Christianity is that we, you know, so for instance, we're in Pentecost right now. This is a good analogy. We're in Pentecost and in Acts chapter, people are being filled with the Holy Spirit. And when they're getting filled with the Holy Spirit, God says in, in the Acts of the Apostle to repent and give and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And as we are in Pentecost season and asking the Holy Spirit to come to us, to fill us with grace, love, mercy, and also judgment to repent. Repentance is not saying I'm sorry. Repentance is, a, is metanoia, is in the Greek, it's 180. So the church is not called to say, this is wrong, this is bad, but they're actually called to say, this is wrong, this is bad, so therefore we're going to do X, Y, Z. But yes, yeah, so I think that's what we're called as disciples of Jesus, and that's what's really important. So, the, you know, the archbishops, both of them, General Synod this year, um, both said we living in historic racism and we have instant racism, but then just like I would tell my little brother or friend's child, okay, so now what we're going to do about it? Because sorry is not good enough. Because God also calls us to repent. And forgiveness only happens with repentance. God does not forgive unrepentant people. He only forgives those who are repentant. What practical things, perhaps quite radical changes, need to happen to help to bring about racial equality in the Church of England? So when it comes to appointments, appointment committees, I think making sure people on appointment committees, and obviously not necessarily just through curacy, but people on appointment committees when it comes to incumbents and the crown nomination, it needs to be people of heritage. It need to make sure that you're, you have that. It needs to make sure that those people are represented. That's really important. I believe that every single person who's going through the discernment process at every theological college who is Black and ethnic minority needs to have some kind of mentor. It is not, oh, that would be nice, because they are working on it. Dr. Um, Elizabeth, um, Elizabeth Henry is doing an amazing job, but it's, um, and she's doing it on her own, and it needs to be some of that. As well as, I believe, and you probably heard this before, if you want to know what someone really believes and really cares about, look at what they spend their money on. And the Church of England needs to drastically, I, and I understand it's COVID and they're struggling, I live in the North. I know the different Northern provinces, especially, are massively struggling. But the Church of England needs to say, this is how much money we're going to spend on kingdom diversity. Not, not necessarily a secular viewpoint of how we should do, because 
is what the times is. But we believe in the kingdom revelation viewpoint of a tribe, every tongue, every nation worshiping Jesus. And we are, we live in the already not yet. So therefore we need to do this. So it sounds like it's not, not an optional extra, but I mean, fundamental to the proclamation of the gospel in this country, really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would just say one of the things that people really can do for their, for their neighbor is Jesus wept with Mary, even though he knew what was the next. And he spent two days longer with her and he wept and he didn't say God is sovereign. God is good. You know, violence is bad. He didn't say any of that stuff. He didn't persecute the people that how Lazarus died, but he just sat in sin. And I think for, especially our black, our brothers and sisters who really care about this stuff, there's like, Oh, what do I do? This is, this is nice changing your Facebook profile picture and being aware of what do I do is actually just listening to black and African minority people and experience racism and not hearing them. Just how Jesus heard me, even though he knew what was going to happen next. And even though he knew the answer because he was God, if we're not God, we don't know the answers, but we can still weep with people who are weeping. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.